Are you looking for more community support in your recovery? If you're a regular listener of this show, I am sure you've heard me talk about my virtual recovery community, the Recovery Collective. This year, we are temporarily reopening membership doors for a few days starting today, May 12th. If you sign up during this time, you will receive four free bonus workshops by our most popular guests of 2021, including Carolyn Costin, Kate Noel, Millie Thomas, and Christina Johnson. Membership doors only open a few times a year, and this special offer is limited to this week. So please join the next wave of new members before it is too late. I am so excited to get to know you inside the collective. Check out the link in our show notes to sign up now. You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the show. Today's guest is Catherine Metzelar. She is a Seattle-based dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor who is passionate about inclusive healthcare for all bodies. She is the owner and founder of Brave Space Nutrition, a private nutrition practice that helps women both virtually and in person to create peace with food and their body free from rules, dieting, and perfectionism. In this episode, we take a deeper look at healing body image. And I promise that Catherine's perspective will have you feeling so much more compassionate for your current body image struggles. And I know that you will take away something valuable from what she has to share. So with that, I hope you enjoy this week's episode of the show. Hi, Catherine. How are you today? I'm doing really good here in Seattle. The sun is out, which is such a rarity for me. So I am feeling good today as we're transitioning into a new season, new time of year. It's feeling really nice. Oh, that must be so nice. And I'm sure just being in Seattle, you really can appreciate the sun when it comes out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were talking offline before we hopped on in that, like this collective suffering that, and that might be a bit extreme, but collective suffering that we all experience throughout the year of being in the darkness here and the cold and the rain. And when the seasons start to transition, it's wonderful. And also sometimes you feel this extra pressure of, oh my gosh, it's sunny. I need to make sure I get outside and make the most of it. And so it's often just this balance of, okay, how can I just appreciate the sun and whatever feels good to me today? I'm going to go with it. Mm, I love that. And I feel like it's funny because I've spent the last several years in Denver and we have the opposite issue. Like we have collective sense of joy because it's sunny every day, pretty much over there. I think 
I don't, I wish I knew the stats, but on rainy days, we celebrate because the pressure's off. We don't have to go on a hike. We don't have to go take our dogs to the park. We can literally stay in and watch movies. So it's actually a reverse which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah, that's so funny. I just think weather, this is sort of a tangent, but weather is just so interesting because we often are experiencing it together. And also I find that it's an easy way for people to connect. Some people complain like, I'm tired of small talk. I'm tired of talking about the weather, but it's like kind of a nice entryway into connecting to someone, especially if you think about in the context of diet culture, because that tends to be something that we're sort of used to attempting to create connection through. Mm -hmm. And I've thought about weather in the same way. Interestingly, I've given this quite a bit of thought just because we talk about the weather a lot here. It's people's attempt to try to connect, to say like, you experiencing this too? This is hard for me. And then we can segue into other things. And so I think talking about the weather is fascinating, sort of a (laughs) side note of things. (laughs) Well, the shared humanity, right? We can all relate to rainy days. We can all relate to sunny days. And no matter where you've been on the globe, we've experienced that. And I can totally see that connection with diet culture because if you're in a modern society, more or less, you are just fully immersed in this diet culture. And it's something people bring up when they're not really sure what else to talk about. And it's a quick connector, unfortunately. Obviously, Mm -hmm. I wish it wasn't so much that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We are socialized, I believe, Mm -hmm. in many ways to use that as a way to connect to other people. And it's hard. Gosh, I'm thinking about too, just generally how difficult it is to be out in, let's say, public spaces, or we could even think about virtually and try to connect with other humans, especially as adults, and then add to this what has been happening in our experience with the pandemic and a lot of people having to go back out into the world, if you will, and be public. And it's the pursuit of weight loss. Or if I don't have... Goodness, if I don't have dieting on the brain, how can I begin to connect to other people? How can I create genuine connections, conversations, friendships? And I think it's a skill, especially goodness. If we think about it in the context of eating disorder recovery, that's something that comes up with my clients all the time. And I know I most certainly can relate to an experience myself, which is, okay, so now it's not taking up so much headspace. Now I don't have the eating disorder driving the car, even though it still might be around to a certain degree what the heck am I going to talk to other people about? What am I even interested in? What are my hobbies, if you will, things that light me up? How can I create genuine friendships, connections, even partnerships if someone is dating without food and exercise being the way that maybe even I've done that historically and it leads to other questions about identity and all kinds of things. But I think about this often in the context of where we're at and sort of a jump from weather to genuine connections, but I think it's all related and an important thing to consider in the context of recovery. Oh, yes. So true. And I know this is totally not what we plan to talk about today, but I want to just quickly ask you about that because I have lived experience with an eating disorder as well. And I was completely obsessed with it. I would talk about it with my peers and friends, and it was just a huge part of my life. And now that I'm fully recovered, the diet culture talk rarely comes up for me now. And I don't know if it's the energy I'm putting out there, but people can almost tell that that's just not something I'm here to engage in. Is that something you've experienced? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think about that often. And sometimes I've had some curiosity of like, why doesn't it come up like it used to, or just generally, especially working over the years with clients and running groups and hearing that they have a very different experience. And I think it is partly, as you named, the energy that I put out, how I'm responding to things when people say things, how I'm expressing my own values and beliefs about things. I'm not no longer, for the most part, standing on the top of a roof, if you will, as an analogy and talking about all these things like I used to. But still, in my friendships or partnership, when we're talking about things, I'm going to be clear and transparent about where I stand and my own beliefs. And so... I think similarly, people know. And also, I think that there's this other part of recovery, which is you no longer want to be in conversations about that, want to be friends with people where that's at the center of their life. Mm -hmm. You become, I think, or I can speak to myself, and I've seen this with clients too, more selective about what kinds of friends I bring into my life and that the mutuality, what am I sharing with them and how am I connecting has changed. And so it might be something that comes up for them. I'm not entirely sure. And I honestly don't care so much if they're dieting or engaging in restrictive behaviors. Of course, I care about them. But nonetheless, it's not going to be something that we're sharing and talking about. And So I think it's for a couple of different reasons. The energy that I put out and also just the kinds of things that I'm interested in from other people that draw me to them that creates this now a circle of people where doesn't really come up when we're talking about other things. And if it does come up, I'm like, okay, we can talk about it. And you will clearly know where I stand about things. And I'm going to ask specific questions about your beliefs and your understanding of all the things that I talk about. Or I would say one more thing I'll add is a lot of times I don't want to talk about it. I just change the topic. I'm like, I talk about this stuff all the time and it brings me a lot of joy, but I'm like, oh, can I bill you for this? I'm not going to step into the therapeutic role, right? So I'm just like, okay, all right, I'm just going to check out here and focus on something else and then maybe come back or try to change the topic because I often don't want to talk about it either. That's very relatable. I think my circle of friends knows that I have a very recovery-oriented point of view. So if I'm not the person they're going to want to commiserate with or talk diet culture with, but... Anyway, sidetrack yeah. <laughs> a little bit from the start. This is going to be an interesting episode, but you mentioned your own experience. So let's dive into that a little bit. Could you tell me about your journey to becoming a dietitian and in the space that you're in now? My journey to becoming a dietitian is a windy path, but one that in retrospect makes a lot of sense to me. So Mm -hmm. I grew up in what I would consider to be a very food positive house. My mom got put on a diet at a very young age. I think she was like seven or eight. And we know that people get put on diets even younger, but it's a very, very young age to me. And grew up with a really problematic food environment, just lots of dieting just experienced a lot of stuff herself. And she didn't want to bring that into her household, just intuitively, instinctually. She didn't have any training around it. So I always had access to a variety of foods and there was no demonization of foods. And my mom was focused on making sure we got protein, fats, and carbs at the meal. And there was like the snack drawer and soda was totally permitted and all these things that in retrospect, I'm able to look back and say, that was incredible just intuitively that she did that. And simultaneously, while I had what I would consider to be a more food positive household and environment, my mom was still dieting. My mom dieted my whole childhood. 
And to add to that, all of her family members, her sisters, my grandmother were obsessed with dieting. It was a theme in the family that we know that if we were going over for a family gathering, someone would be on some new diet talking about what they were cutting out, what they were trying, how much weight they've lost or gained. It was constant. And we would just roll our eyes and go off and talk about something else. And in addition to that, I would say an important part of my own familial history and one that I think about a lot in the context of eating disorders is my aunt. So my mom's sister had both bulimia, never got treatment for it. And it was sort of like this hush-hush secret within the family. Nobody talked about it. And if they did talk about it, it was behind closed doors. When she would visit, she would engage in disordered behaviors, but people wouldn't say anything. And so I think a lot about the genetic component of things, but also the stigma around eating disorders that most certainly showed up in my family and so many other things that I could say about that situation. But nonetheless, it was like, I like to think about it like the stage was being set for me. Like when you go to a live show or like a Broadway show or something, and I love Broadway shows, you come and sit down and the curtain's closed and they open up the curtain and it's incredible. The sets are designed and the actors are singing and they know all of their lines, but it's how much went into the building of this whole production, maybe even a whole year, relatively speaking, uh, lots of practice, lots of arranging of things. And that's how I like to think about my journey, honestly, to becoming a dietitian, but more specifically to the development of the disordered eating and the eating disorder, which was sort of all these things that were being set on the stage. And all it took is for me to walk up on the stage and then it was already all there. So in high school, I was an athlete. And interestingly, it really protected me, I think, from a lot of disordered eating. And I know that that's not the case for everybody, but there was a real focus on fueling and eating enough. And again, a really what feels like, in retrospect, a food positive space. Mm-hmm. When things really changed, though, and shifted was when I went to college. And even before I went to university, there was a lot of fear mongering around you're going to gain weight, this is a bad thing you need to avoid it at all costs. Mm. And so I did. That is exactly what happened as it does for many people when they go to college, partly because of our stage of development, partly because of other stuff that's going on. I drank a lot and some of my eating patterns changed. And I don't think that that's the only reason why my body changed, but I know that that was most certainly part of it. And it was sort of just like this expectation, like you've gained weight your freshman year. So afterwards you need to work on doing something about it. And that was when I went on my first diet. And it felt so intuitive at the time. It was a diet that my mom had done growing up. It's a very carbohydrate, extremely restrictive carbohydrate diet. And that's when it all started. The disordered eating, I started purging during that time. I started restricting, obviously, food groups based on what the diet was telling me to do. I started over-exercising. And that the purging piece actually didn't continue, but I did get stuck in cycles of binging and restriction. And then that kind of segued into what I'm now able to identify in retrospect, orthorexia. So it was over the years and it ebbed and flowed as eating disorders do of if someone had caught me during a certain time, like a clinician, I probably would have gotten one diagnosis and other times I would have gotten a different diagnosis. But that changed to this healthy eating, healthy lifestyle, 
I was starting to get a lot of attention for it, a lot of respect for it. And then that just continued on and on to the point that I was like, this is taking up so much of my time. And I thought it was a really good thing. Wow. I'm doing all these amazing things. And I know so many things and I'm getting what we all want, praise, love, approval, admiration, respect for all these things. So it was like, oh, this feels great. Uh, And I don't know if I was conscious of it at the time in that way, but I was like, you know what? I should just go to school for this. I love it so much. I love food so much. It takes up so much of my headspace. And so I just felt, I just need the stamp of approval. I, I want to get my master's. I already know this is, this was actually my thought before many years ago. I already know what to do and what to tell people to do. I just want the, the letters behind my name to do it. And I'm able to see now in reflection that all of that was being driven by my own disordered eating. My obsession with food was not because I love food, although I do love food, but it was showing up in a very different way. And it wasn't actually until I got to grad school that that's when things started to unravel in regards to me realizing that I had an eating disorder and what was going on and what had been going on for a really long time. But to answer your question more directly, the path was windy to become a dietitian. And it was largely fueled by my own disordered eating that made me most interested in this path of nutrition and wellness. Wow. Okay. That is such a journey and it is quite winding. And how did you evolve from, I'm assuming a classically trained dietitian who is maybe prescribing weight loss to someone who is all about intuitive eating and you know, body acceptance and that sort of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's interesting looking back because my program actually did, my master's program did a decent job. Oh, definitely room for improvement. Definitely could have done better, but did a pretty decent job at introducing various principles and ways of looking at bodies and mm-hmm. just what it means to be a well human, if you will. Now, of course, we had to be trained in sort of the classic model because we have boards that we have to do. And because not all of my professors were on board with things like health at every size or intuitive eating. But I remember, just to illustrate this, I remember running into a professor at a conference, Fancy Conference, which is the dietitian conference that happens every year, a very large one. And she was presenting on some research that she had done at the school that I went to. And she was she tracked Masters of Science in Nutrition in regards to disordered eating behaviors throughout their tenure at the university in comparison to naturopathic medicine students. And they used a whole range of criteria. And, but what they were able to show as was that the nutrition students came in exhibiting a lot of disordered eating behaviors and actually that it decreased over time. And what they were trying to show is that the program made a significant difference in that experience. Mm-hmm. Whereas the inverse happened with the naturopathic medics, medicine students. They came in with not significant degrees of disordered eating and it increased over time. And they suspected that's because of all the things that they are taught throughout the program. So all of that to say, I was trained classically in some ways. And I also think that my program did a pretty good job at challenging my own beliefs. I mean, I credit curiously my my master's program in forcing me to begin my own recovery because it was challenging my beliefs that I had, my understanding of food and bodies and nutrition. And there were 
a lot of elements of social justice woven into our work and our teaching education about socioeconomic differences. I think that was the beginning of it. It's definitely not the end, but it opened up some doors for me to choose if I wanted to walk into those doors, which I did. That evolved from my education. And after my internship, I went on to work for a company here in Seattle. And it was during my time there, I worked with a lot of clients realizing because part of the company's offerings was weight loss and I was required to talk to people about it. And in talking to people over and over again and realizing what really lit me up, what did I feel excited about when I talked to people was not their pursuit of weight loss. And in fact, I was even aware at the time of how harmful that was, but rather their relationship to food, their relationship to their body, that was where the missing piece was. And I got to the point where I was like, this ethically no longer aligns with my own values. I can't continue working for this company. So I need to transition. And that's when I started Brave Space Nutrition. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I have to say you're the first to mention a program that was really looking at more when it comes to what a dietitian can do. I have not mm-hmm. heard that be part of someone's uh, story before. So that's really refreshing to hear. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad that was your experience. Yeah, same. We even had full of counseling classes and really focused on elements of motivational interviewing. I mean, I could go on about that, but I am grateful for the experience uh, that I had there because it was the beginning of my journey of where I ended up up until this point. Amazing. So now you're at Brave Space Nutrition. And really quickly, could you explain what you mean by Brave Space? I saw the definition on your website. I thought it was really beautiful. Yeah. So I remember hearing about this notion of a Brave Space before I started Brave Space Nutrition. And I loved it because if we think about, and for those that are, for your listeners, If we think about it on a spectrum, this is what feels most helpful for me with unsafe space being on one side of it and safety being on the other. I like to think about brave space as being movements towards the middle. And I'll get more specific here in describing it. And then I'll talk about conceptually how I think about it. The reason why uh, safe space doesn't usually work and doesn't resonate with me, at least in many others, is that I, as a clinician and as a human, do not get to determine what is safe for somebody else. Mm -hmm. Safety, number one, is established within relationships. And also what we see and feel as safe varies per person. I have no way of creating that. I can't say this is a safe space and all of a sudden it becomes a safe space. It's just not how it works. And so... While my goal often and as a practice is to create a safer space, a calmer space for people, I don't get to determine how safe a space is. What is a brave space then? What does it mean to make movement towards brave space? So on the website, I define it as a space in which you can move towards your edges to discover what's beyond them. Is a space where you can grow and learn and change, a space where you can safely and with curiosity challenge yourself and others. So it's a space that we're not always necessarily comfortable in. And I think that that's an important part of thinking about a brave space. It's where I'm saying things that you might not like, that might challenge you, and vice versa. In the relationship where we can 
when I say where we can explore our edges, the places in which we do experience discomfort and we might not want to see parts of ourselves or we might not want to unpack our internalized beliefs or we might not want to challenge some of the ways in which we understand ourselves and make sense of many things when it comes to food and bodies. And so it's this interplay of what I believe to be brave work, that we are stepping into a brave space where we're not always going to feel comfortable. Of course, there is comfort and joy and laughter and all the, I think, wonderful things that can come about in the process of healing a relationship to food in your body. But there's a lot of things really challenging on so many levels. And so that's what led me to name Brave Space what it is, Brave Space Nutrition, that we are both collectively, whether it's in a group that I run or in one-on-one work or with the clinicians that work at Brave Space, we are all stepping into a Brave Space together simultaneously. Mm, That is so helpful to think of it in that way, because I can see Brave Space being completely applicable to recovery work, right? It's basically the place I encourage my clients to be in every day, which is nearing your edges. I loved the use of the word edges because it's something where, yeah, you're teetering that line of discomfort and pushing that a little bit every single day in a way that you feel comfortable with, but also uncomfortable at the same time. Yes. Comfort and discomfort. And in speaking of recovery and eating disorder recovery, so much of what we're talking about is increasing our distress tolerance, right? Mm. And so if we're thinking about the practice of that in a brave space, it's actually really important as part of our ability to be able to tolerate and create space and capacity for the discomfort that comes up. And then we practice that in the work by stepping into a brave space of, whoo, this feels really hard for me. This feels uncomfortable, especially when we start talking about not just food, but our bodies and our body stories and body image work. There's so much there that can really, really be challenging, but important to create the capacity to tolerate it. Yes. That helps me transition into the topic we wanted to speak on today, which is body image. And how do you see being in that brave space and body image work, working hand in hand? Well, when I think about body image, I think about the relationship that we have with our body. And I know that sounds really simple and straightforward. And I think it's important to name because I often use the words body image in the ways in which I advertise for groups and let people know what I'm doing or talking about. I think though, we tend to think about body image as just being this surface level, like it's, I'm just so superficial and all I care about is what I look like. When in fact, we're talking about a very complex, multi-rooted relationship that has existed since your birth that we have to unpack as part of the healing process. Mm -hmm. And so it requires in many ways, if someone's ready for it, not everybody is, it requires that we step into some brave space because everyone has internalized beliefs about bodies, about what it means to have fat on their bodies, what it means to exist in the world, what kinds of things have they been told about their bodies and how have they internalized it. It requires, 
I believe, a lot of bravery to even begin to explore these things around what is my body's story? What have I been told about my body? What are my internalized beliefs that I may not even like? That comes up all the time with clients in one-on-one work where they're like, I really don't want to say this but this is really coming up for me. I have X belief or I'm thinking this. And that's a beautiful example of stepping into brave space where it's like, they're afraid to say it to me, not that I welcome it. And they're afraid to hear themselves say it. They're afraid to acknowledge that this is a belief that they have for themselves. And so I see them going hand in hand. Mm. I fundamentally believe that it's brave to do this work generally, but that we are really pushing up against our edges when we're doing body image work. I can see how it would be really scary and confronting to unpack the roots of your body image issues and all the complex layers around it, and then start to verbalize that to your treatment team and the people who are trying to help you. Like you even shared your family's history with dieting. And at some point it feels really brave to bring up just the fact that that had an influence on your own story. No. Oh, hundred percent. I hid it for years or just felt shame around it or didn't entirely understand it, was afraid to name it or afraid what other people would think, or if my family found out and that is not in alignment with my own values as a human anymore. And also I believe that not talking about things only perpetuates shame and stigma. And so while we all get to have our own journeys and I don't have any expectations of anybody else, it matters to me to name the truth of how things were, to name the reality of things, to not pretend, which is a family story of mine, to pretend like everything's okay. And we're just casually, for example, in this case, dieting because we want to be quote unquote healthy, which is a lot of BS, but that's part of it for me. It's nope, I'm going to name it how it is so that I can continue both as a professional and as a human in this world to just cut through that shame and stigma about eating disorders in this case and how quote unquote, not common they are, which we know that that's not the case at all. And to just normalize having those conversations too, I think is important. Yeah. I truly admire that because we can go along pretending that we were raised in this perfect environment that was totally positive. This eating disorder just came about out of the blue, but being able to name it and then just recognize that it's important to shed light on that, to decrease shame is so important. And again, stepping into the bravery of making a change for yourself, your family and the community around you. So I I see that and I appreciate you sharing that. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yes. So you mentioned your own body story and helping people uncover their own body story. So could you explain what exactly a body story is? So I like to think about our body story similarly to how it might sound. So we individually have experienced so much, and so much is probably an understatement for most people, so much when it comes to our body, what it's been through, what we've been told about it, the various diets or disordered behaviors that we've engaged with, the kinds of things that our culture and world might say about our body, the kind of trauma that it's been through or difficult experiences, 
it has experienced so much. And I think a lot of times people come into body image work thinking a couple things that I've observed over time. One is what's happening to me now and what I feel is a result of what's happening now. Mm. And that is not true. And we're missing a huge, huge part of their lived experience, both now and historically, that has contributed to their body image or how they're in relationship with their body. The other thing I see really commonly is that people will feel like, which makes a lot of sense, people will feel like this, I just need to check some boxes. I just need to do X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to feel better. I really wish it was that way. I wish that healing our relationship with our body was just a series of things that we had to do, and it's not. And so part of healing our relationship with our body, I fundamentally believe, is trying to understand what has happened as a first step. What has happened to me? What have I experienced that may give me more insight into what's happening right now that usually allows for a path and bridge to compassion, which is also a core tenet, I believe, of shifting and changing our relationship with our body because most people do not have that muscle developed. Most people have a really hard time connecting to compassion towards their body and towards their experience. And I think understanding and naming and being able to tell our body story is a fundamental part of healing. And most people don't know it, don't have connection to it, which makes sense. How could they, unless they've had someone walking them through it, or they've given it some thought and reflection. But once we start to connect the dots, it all starts to make sense. And once we get to a place where we're like, oh, wow, that makes a lot of sense that I feel that way. Or, oh, I can see that when that happened, this changed. And, oh, I can see how when my coach told me this about my body or my parents said this all the time, that did change this. And then we just start to create this web of understanding. And then in addition to compassion, it allows us to be able to choose what we want to do with that next. Do we want to start challenging those internalized beliefs or systems or voices of certain people? Do we want to stay with it? Do we want to, we get to make some decisions with that information. And I think it's really helpful and essential and powerful for people to understand their own body story, especially when people hold marginalized identities to understand that in the context of their own body story too. Mm -hmm. I think it's really beautiful to hear what exactly is a body story. Obviously it's just easy to interpret it face value body story, obviously, but it is really a web that can inform us about how we became this way, how we arrived to this place, and then give us a sense of compassion for perhaps why we are struggling. How would you guide someone through that process? Do you have any framework you lead people through, or do you just encourage them to really reflect on memorable moments in their life, traumatic moments in their life? Like how does that usually come about? Yeah. I was just thinking of a joke that probably isn't funny as you were saying it. Cause I was like, yeah, we just get him right there. And I say, what are your most traumatic experiences with your body? I definitely, definitely don't do that. So I don't have a framework yet. Although I think I'm getting pretty close to being able to offer that. I think one of the things that can be a helpful beginning question that people can ask themselves. And for those that are listening is, do you recall a time in your life in which you felt even okay about your body, that your body 
And the way that it looked didn't take up any headspace. And for some people, they will say, I don't remember ever having moments in my life. And that's information in and of itself. Some people will say, oh yeah, I remember feeling like, okay, or sort of proud that I had a body and a belly and go through the world and not think about things. And then this happened and this is when it shifted. Or, oh, I got to age 12 and I went through puberty and this is when it changed. And so asking the beginning question can be insightful of like, do we have any memory? And I think it's also helpful for to begin to understand our body story. But I also think it's helpful to kind of temper expectations when it comes to shifting our relationship with our body. And what I mean by that more specifically is if you have existed for most of your life, hating your body or feeling dissatisfied or disgusted by it, it's going to take some time to shift things as well. And so when someone says, I can't remember a moment, or this has been going on since I was seven and now I'm in my forties or however old somebody is, it's okay. Let's take it slow. We're not in a rush here to get to a finish line, knowing that this has been around for some time. And I understand the desire to want to get through things quickly because when we're in suffering, of course, we want to not be suffering anymore. Makes Mm -hmm. a ton of sense. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of asking questions to understand more. And so I think people can do this in one-on-one work and in group work, but also they can do this on their own time, journaling and wondering if they are interested in understanding their own body story, was there ever a time in which I, it didn't take up so much headspace for me? Mm-hmm. When did it shift? What were the kinds of things that contributed to that shift? And mapping it. I know a lot of people will do this as it relates to their own dieting history in recovery and doing healing work of what is my timeline here? When did I start my first diet? When I start restricting food so we can just see it more clearly. And you can also do that when you are um, trying to seek to understand your own body story of like, when did this change? Then what happened? As best as we can. We don't always know and we can't pinpoint it necessarily because I'm most interested in all the things that have impacted a person when it comes to their body image up to the point that I'm working with them. Mm-hmm. And we can do and get curious, do that work and get curious about it on our own in that way mm-hmm. of understanding what the heck has my body been through? Because it's been through a lot. I can say that with certainty, no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, your body has been through a lot. And the way that you feel about your body makes a lot of sense, no matter where you're at in regards to your relationship with your body. And what we're trying to do is understand the what. What are the things that have contributed to that so that we can make some change in the future, should we choose it? Mm-hmm. Thank you for expanding on that. I think there will be many listeners taking on some journaling sessions later today. <laughs> I love giving listeners a, a bit of something they can do later on after after listening. So thank you for that. You do mention that part of body image work is looking at the beliefs you have about your body and maybe working to change those or even just uncover those. How do you go about, first of all, identifying your beliefs and then also challenging those? I think with everything it begins with some education. And I say that because and I'm trying to emphasize the some because education is most certainly not where it ends. Mm-hmm. I see education in some ways as sort of the intro to a book mm-hmm. of what are some of the systems that we exist within 
that likely have impacted the beliefs that we hold about our bodies. Mm-hmm. So things like weight stigma and anti-fatness, things like racism, things like even capitalism can fit into that context. Things like misogyny, right? These are very, very large, big, big topics that I don't claim expertise in any of them and yet have learned that all of them, in addition, of course, to diet culture are all at play when we start talking about our relationship to our body. And I'm sure I'm missing some systems here as well. And so I think it can be helpful just to begin that process where it feels most right for us. We're not going to be able to know all the things all at once and all the systems that have impacted our relationship with our body and all the ways we've internalized all these messages. But for some people, for example, because I'm a woman and because I work with a lot of women, and I know there's a lot of women that listen to this podcast, it can be a really helpful place to talk about how sexism and misogyny have played a role as it relates to our relationship to our body. How have we navigated not only our own felt sense of safety in this world and being, uh, for, for most women, not feeling safe often, but also in addition to that, this expectation that we owe the world thinness and beauty. And how is that connected to how we are in relationship with our body? Of course, it's connected. How could we disconnect that? Once we can see that, there's no way that we can say, well, this is my fault. I've done this to myself. I've developed this bad relationship with my body. And it's no, how you feel about your body, the beliefs that you hold have developed for a reason because you've had to figure out a way to navigate this world that's often really difficult. And that's sort of on a macro level, when you think about it on a micro level, what has happened inside your family system that has also contributed to your beliefs about your body? What kinds of things whether it was explicit or not, did your family tell you about your body and bodies in general growing up? That question in and of itself can give you a ton of information. What messages were communicated to you? What did you know from a really young age, even though maybe it wasn't being said about bodies? Mm. I think that can give you a lot of information because people are, especially when we think about family systems, not everyone has done work around their relationship to food and their body. And a lot of beliefs are passed down through generations. People aren't necessarily introspective about the beliefs that they hold. And so we inherit so many body messages and body stories. And so it's important for us to unpack that and understand what is going on here and how is this contributing to my hatred towards my body or my disgust with my body, which are two really common feelings, beliefs, experiences that people have or the people that I work with. Mm -hmm. You mentioned misogyny and sexism. And I was wondering, are there any common like stories or beliefs that are rooted in those systems that come up a lot? Because I'm sure there are listeners who might be able to relate to that. Common things that I hear related to that are things like, I'm afraid that other people are going to think that I've, quote, let myself go, unquote, if I allow my body to settle where it wants to be, if I gain weight is really what we're talking about. I want to preface this with these aren't necessarily conscious. It's not like people are thinking these until we name it, 
which is an important part of the process too. They aren't conscious. They're not walking around thinking that necessarily. Similar, some of the other things related to misogyny and having to exist in a patriarchal world is I am afraid that if I let my body gain weight or allow it to be where it wants to be, I will no longer be lovable. I will no longer be accepted. I will lose respect from other people. And also I would add in addition to that, this felt sense of responsibility. This comes up a lot in my work with clients and what I've seen in my body image groups that I run over the years, that there's this underlying expectation that this is your duty as a woman. It is your duty to have a thin body. It is your duty to be fit, quote unquote, in all the right ways. And for a lot of people feeling like they've somehow failed because they're not fulfilling that duty, which you know, is so messed up, even in saying it. it's like your duty as a woman is absolutely not to have a certain body and owe no one. You owe no one thinness or beauty in the way that this culture defines it, which is messed up in and of itself anyway. But there's a usually a, quite a bit there related to misogyny and the kinds of messages that we get as women. In addition to that, this notion that we're supposed to take up as little space as possible that you need to shrink yourself any way that you can. And I see that as very protective and a movement towards safety for a lot of people to take up space means that it's dangerous. And I want to shrink myself. And so that's also a part of this, like, what does it mean to take up space? Was it mean to not shrink ourselves? Was it mean to allow our bodies to feel in some ways a sense of safety, but then along side of that can bring up a felt sense of unsafety as we begin to, if this happens for people, which is common in recovery, take up more space when it comes to our body, our body size. Wow. You just mentioned so many stories, beliefs that I know I've held on to and people in my practice and listeners have held on to. And oh, my heart goes out to everyone who is carrying that. And it does go back to that sense of compassion, just recognizing these didn't come up out of nowhere. Like you are living in in an environment that just promotes these beliefs and you took them on, even though they weren't your own. Yeah. Yes. They don't just fall from the sky by any (laughs) means. And yeah, it's definitely not like rain in that case. And I think that a lot of times, and I'm thinking of this as we're talking through it, people can see body image work even some of the things that we've said, oh, it's it's just you're just talking about your body story or you're just talking about the systems. This is hard work. It is hard to unpack these things, to challenge these things, to understand, I believe, and acknowledge the ways in which we've been suffering. And that's really hard for folks, especially folks in recovery or folks with eating disorders, because there tends to be a very common theme of holding themselves to high standards and being perfectionist, or I identify as a recovering perfectionist. So to identify as the ways in which we have suffered can be difficult, but really powerful in changing our relationship to our body. And wow, I'm looking at the time and things have been flying by. So before we wrap up, Just wanted to quickly say thank you so much for joining me today. And do you have, and this is totally on the spot, I did not prep you for this, but did you have any advice for those wanting to take a step towards healing their body image? There's so many things that come to mind. So I 
am of the belief that, as I mentioned, education could be a first step. So of course, there's podcasts like yours and others, really wonderful books. Sonia Renee Taylor, who is just really profound when it comes to changing and shifting our relationship with our body. So I think that there's resources like that that we can start with, of course. I do believe that education and community are the two really important parts of this. So of course, we can do it on -on one-on-one work if we're working with clinician, that's always possible. But the reason why I started my body image groups was because people feel overwhelmingly alone in the way they are in relationship with their body. And yet behind the scenes, I get to hear very similar things often. And I, in a couple months, I'm about to launch a body image course, which I feel really excited about. And so I think that that can be a really beautiful entry way into things, especially if people are like, where do I even begin? What are these systems that you're talking about? And also that feels overwhelming. How do I do some of this work on my own while also understanding it in the comfort of my own space where I don't need to do this with anybody else. I could get an understanding of things and begin to understand their own body story and all the things that have contributed to it. In addition to that though, I have and will continue to offer body image support groups. So I think alongside of the education, it is so validating and helpful and healing to be with other, in this case, women who are able to say, oh my gosh, me too. Like I'm struggling with that. And maybe we don't always have the answers and maybe we have to sit in the discomfort of that or anything else that comes up. But I think that those two parts of healing our relationship with our body are fundamental. The education part, but it can't stop there. It cannot stop there. We cannot think our way out of having a better body image. That's really important. I want your listeners to take that away (laughs) because I bet that anyone who's listening is very smart and is with it. And we cannot think our way into recovery. We cannot think our way into having a better relationship with our body. And education is helpful. Inquiry is helpful. Compassion is helpful. All of the things that will be part of the course that I'll be launching in a couple months, but also having that community, 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 community. I can't emphasize it more so that we can break this cycle of shame The more that we can talk about the difficult things that we're experiencing, the less shame that we will be in because shame perpetuates isolation and isolation perpetuates more shame. And so I'm like, where can we break that cycle? And so much of that happens in community with other people, which is something that I also offer and facilitate. And I know others do too. So I think those can both be really beautiful places for people to start. Wow. Thank you so much. I agree with you. Huge fan of what you just said, especially the importance of pairing education with something like community. So I love that. And I just wanted to say again, Catherine, I really appreciate you and all the work that you do. And thank you so much for being on the show today. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. I loved talking with you and yeah, thank you for having me on. You're very welcome. And for all the listeners, I'll be sharing all the links so you can get in touch with Catherine if you feel inspired in the show notes. All right, Catherine, have a great day. Great. Thanks, you too. Take care. 